Hi, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. You're going to learn about how grapes benefit your gut microbiome and actually help maintain a healthy cholesterol level. Who says? University of California at Los Angeles. That's just one of many studies I'll be sharing with you as we do every day to empower people to live a longer and healthier and happier life. But also today, they've just completed the latest um, example of hubris, a lot of pretense, a lot of posturing, a lot of, a lot of bragging about what we're going to do to save the planet, and virtually nothing being done, because nothing is mandatory. Everything is voluntary. And some of the people, including those in, for example, India, and even in China, are saying, well, within the next 30 to 50 years, we will begin to get a handle on this. No. No, if we're not doing this in the next five years, it'll be too late to do anything. So one of the people who is always out there virtue shaming everyone else and priding himself and how important he is to this cause is Barack Obama. So let's just take a factual look at what he actually did to save the environment, to help make it a better place for all of us, and to make sure that he was doing his part as he controlled the government and the government was doing their part. The agencies were all on board. But that's not the way it was, as you will see, just the opposite. So isn't it amazing the media has not called him out? Not once, not even the environmental organizations have called him out. That shows you how utterly in contempt of the truth the world is that we're living in. Also today, we're beginning a series. The series is taking a legitimate challenge to all of the mainstream media and all of the global agencies involved with COVID. We're bringing to you some of the finest academic and medical minds, blemish-free careers, top of their field, MD, PhDs, Nobel Prize winners, who are saying that we got it wrong and it wasn't by accident. How's that possible? That it was intentional, that they have gamed the entire system. Okay, what's your evidence? We will be sharing with you actual articles published in their peer-reviewed journals that they have said, look at this article, see what it does. But when these people, these scientists, these orthodox scientists looked, they said it's just the opposite. They've been lying about everything. I mean everything. One example, you know, we have an epidemic of the unvaccinated going into hospital. Not true. Just the opposite. But look at the figures. Look at the statistics. Do the deep research, and the real scholarship will show you the lies. Also, since so many people have been resistant to challenge the establishment, it's really it's joyful to see how many tens of thousands of Orthodox pro-vaccine, pro-establishment physicians and scientists are risking it all to come forward. They've all been attacked. Well, you would have thought deplatformed, attacked, canceled, ridiculed, mocked, even their own colleagues trying to get them fired, and yet they're alive and they're fighting back. This week, the top voices representing the truth and fighting for you are fighting back. And as you will hear, one guy says, he's the guy, John Martin, Doc, Dr. Martin, 
with a bow tie, bald head, and uh, very detail-oriented. He says, I'm no longer going to be Mr. Nice Guy. I'm going to go out there and just beat the hell out of these people, metaphorically, you know, academically, not physically. He says, I'm taking them on. But all of them are doing that. You know, the MD, PhD, top epidemiologists and cardiologists, excuse me, and, and oncologists from Yale who said hydroxychloroquine worked and he was attacked for it. He's fighting back using their statistics and their studies. He was right all along. He's going to prove it. So we have something like this every day. So we're fighting the battle with truth, statistics, real science. They're fighting it with propaganda and control over whole industries, captured politicians, and completely duplicitous bureaucrats. That's what you got in store for this week. So we begin always with the latest on health and healing. And a new clinical study published in the scientific journal Nutrients found that consuming grapes significantly increased the diversity of bacteria in your gut, which is considered essential for good health. Remember, you have two brains, one up here in the cranium, the other in your intestine, and the immune system down here in the, with the gut microbiome, all the good bacteria, that is so important. And grapes are very important for that, as well as helping with bile acids, which play an integral role in cholesterol metabolism. The findings show that there's a role now for grapes in gut health and reinforce the benefits of grape for your heart health as well. Also from Kansas City Veterans Administration Medical Center, vitamin D supplementation will lower your risk of heart attacks or death from a heart attack in this follow-up. So have vitamin D every day. I'm suggesting now around 3,000 units just as a COVID prevention, but up to 5,000 is fine. Also, the October current issue of the Journal of Endocrine Society published findings uh, for a retrospective study of U.S. veterans that uncovered an association between that vitamin D and lowering your risk of heart attack and death from any cause during a 14-year follow-up. So take your vitamin D3 today and lessen your life of, lessen your risk of having a heart attack or dying over the next 14 years. Now, also from uh, Thomas Jefferson University comes a study about meditative practice and spiritual well-being may preserve cognitive function in aging. And this was done through the Alzheimer's Reach and Preventive Foundation. It, uh, it is projected that up to 152 million people worldwide will be living with Alzheimer's disease in the not distant future. To date, there are no drugs that have a substantial positive impact on either the prevention or reversal of cognitive decline from the mainstream. We have proven this to be just the opposite from alternative perspectives. And by the way, I did the only study ever done and it was uh, published, and I presented it before several scientific congresses, showing that lifestyle modification without any medications at all, uh, the very programs that I share with you every day, was able to reverse Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, um, myasthenia gravis, and Alzheimer's. But now there's a body 
of evidence that is growing that says target your lifestyle and vascular risk factors and you'll have a beneficial effect on overall cognitive performance. A new review in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease uh, examines research that finds spiritual fitness, a new concept in medicine that centers on psychological and spiritual well-being, can reduce multiple risk factors for uh, AD, Alzheimer's disease. Also, radiotherapy may explain why childhood cancer survivors often develop metabolic disease. This is from Rockefeller University. Decades after battling childhood cancer, survivors often face a new challenge, cardiometabolic disease. That's a spectrum of conditions that includes coronary heart disease and diabetes, and cardiometabolic disease typically impacts people who are obese, elderly, or insulin resistant. For reasons yet unknown, young, seemingly healthy adults who survive childhood cancer are also at risk. But I remember interviewing the former director of the National Cancer Institute, a very nice gentleman, and he was the last of the directors that actually wanted and was doing cancer uh, research using natural supplements. When I went to Washington in the National Cancer Institute to interview him, he was showing me studies on vitamin D and vitamin C and uh, helping with cancer, both prevention and treatment. But he said there's enormous pressure from the pharmaceutical industry to only use drugs that they can sell, including chemotherapies. So he said that the likelihood would be that what started off with lots of lifestyle prevention at the level of helping prevent cancer that was done originally at the founding of the National Cancer Institute, that was all swept aside. So now we're finding, and I told him at the time, yeah, you can reverse leukemia with a combination of four different chemotherapy drugs, and that's good. But there's no building up the immune system. So years later, they end up with a secondary cancer. And that they generally succumb to because they have no, no immune response. How many times have I seen people say, well, I'm doing the chemotherapy, and yeah, there are terrible side effects, but um, it stopped the cancer growth and it's shrinking. Okay, radiation will do that also. But it's not just shrinking the tumor that is important or debulking it, which I agree with and support with surgery. Rather, it is building up the immune system because ultimately your natural killer cells and how active they are go around the body and they, along with other immune modulating cells, grab the cancer cells, the tumor cells, and destroy them on a daily basis, 24-7. So if you end up winning the short-term victory, we, we shrunk the tumor. But then what happens to the immune system? if you don't build it up, and that's not a part of the current major emphasis in cancer research. That's why I believe that the study from Rockefeller University, they're clueless about why the kids later come down with other conditions. It's because they never rebuilt their immune system. Also, researchers discover the link between dietary fat, in this case palm oil, which is very bad, and the spread of cancer. This is from the Barcelona Institute of Science and Technology in Spain. The study is published in the current issue of Nature, and uh, it was also supported by the United Kingdom charity Worldwide Cancer Research, and it covers how 
palmitic acid alters cancer genomes and increases the likelihood of cancer will spread. The researchers started to develop therapies that interrupt this process, and that's, that's good. But why not just let the world know we shouldn't be having all this palm oil? And why shouldn't we be stopping all the palm oil to begin with? Why shouldn't we be boycotting products that use palm oil? Because they're destroying the forest in Indonesia, which is the home to so many species, including the orangutans. There's a, there was just this terrible picture. It was iconic. I mean, it just breaks your heart. I remember saying it about almost a year ago. There's a whole barren forest. One tree on one limb is a mother orangutan with her baby, and they're about to shoot her. So they can tear down the tree and plant palm oil. And you think, wow, I mean, how cruel are we? Well, I don't think there's any limit to how cruel some people can be. But it starts also with, are we also complicit by our choosing to be intentionally negligent in what we choose not by intention to know the truth that we may be complicit, like your clothes. Do you buy your clothes and look at the tag? Is it made in India, China, Bangladesh, where people are exploited, women mainly are exploited, causing a shorter lifespan because they can make dresses and shirts and suits less expensive? So this is all important. We become more attentive especially to where our food comes from. So boycott palm oil. Good news from Loma Linda University. Consuming nuts strengthens your brave wave function. A new study has found that eating nuts on a regular basis strengthens brainwave frequencies associated with cognition, healing, learning, memory, and other key brain functions. In the study titled Nuts and Brain, Effects of Eating Nuts on Changing Electro um, Pulses in Brave Waves, the researchers found that some nuts stimulated some brain frequencies more than others. Pistachios, for instance, produce the greatest gamma wave response, which is critical for enhancing cognitive process, information retention, learning, perception, and rapid eye movement during sleep. Peanuts, which are actually legumes, but we're still part of the study, produced the highest delta response, which is associated with healthy immunity, natural healing, and deep sleep. So, pistachios, good for protein, good fats, and now good for the brain. From the University of Hertfordshire, excuse me, um, from the University in Great Britain, why nitrates and nitrites in processed meats are harmful, but those in vegetables are good. And while there may be many reasons processed meats are great for our health, though I haven't found any, but a lot of people still believe that meat's good for you, build strong muscles. Yeah, well, Mr. America, Mr. Universe, and all these great bodybuilders, and the strongest animals in the world, and you know uh, the longest-lived animals in the world, like the Galapagos turtle, and a shark that's over 300 years old that's been uh, tagged and recorded living in the Bering Sea and, and all these other, uh, or n not the Bering Sea, but the um, in the North Ocean, Atlantic. Uh, think, of the, uh, think of the vegans, the hippopotamus, rhinoceros, the elephant, and principally the diet of the gorilla. 
great apes and chimpanzees long-lived, and birds also. They eat some insects, of course, but principally the diet is fruits. Long-lived. I've studied all the scientific literature, and I cannot find any studies showing that the meats that you commonly eat, like last night I'm watching all these ads when I'm trying to watch a ball game up for pizza, right? That's meat that doesn't go bad. Any, anything that doesn't go bad in the way of meats is not good for you. The salami. But think of all the others. You won't see an article in the British Medical Journal that says, eat more salami and live a longer life. It's good for your blood. It's good for your heart. It's good for your breasts and, and your pancreas. No, just the opposite. And yet, we believe or want to believe that meat makes us strong and viral. It doesn't. Just the opposite. In any case, meat also contains chemicals called nitrates, N-I-T-R-A-T-E-S, and nitrites, N-I-T-R-I-T-E-S. But processed meats aren't the only foods that contain these chemicals. In fact, many vegetables also contain high amounts of mainly nitrates. And yet research suggests that eating vegetables lowers not raises cancer risk. So how can nitrites and nitrates be harmful when added to meat, but healthy in vegetables? The answer is lies in how nitrates, nitrites, and food get converted into other molecules. And that's important. So continue to have your vegetable juices and eat vegetables, and but stay away from the animal proteins. Now, that's the latest on health and healing. Before we take a break, I just want to suggest that once again, after all the fanfare, after all the hand-waving and, and the doomsdayers coming in and the whole propaganda machine, which is old, tired, and just it's boorish now with Greta Thunberg and her family and all the people behind her promoting this, I have nothing against her. And her overall message is accurate. It's just, we're adults. We're not going to be motivated by such an obvious campaign. And who's behind it? And what do they benefit? Yeah, all you have to do is look. But it's all these other people coming. And who are the largest single group represented at the international environmental conferences? The polluting industries. Yes, big oil gas hydrofracking, nuclear, the ones that we subsidize, the ones who make obscene profits, the ones who artificial inflate market values, the ones who cause you to spend more at the pump or more to heat your home. These are the people that are there and they're there in droves and they're there to make sure that nothing changes. Promise, promise, yeah. Show them doing work with algae converting algae into, you know, a renewable, sustainable energy. Great idea. Yeah. And we've seen that for 20 years now. Or, or Al Gore. Maybe Al should try a vegan diet. But he's got hundreds of thousands of people across the world that he has led in all of these conferences. But at the end of the day, where I will not uh, challenge them on their underlying desire to see a safer world environmentally, what are they doing except profit-driven programs like 
their green energy through their solar system. Why don't they champion wave power? It's non-polluting. Geothermal, it's non-polluting. Well, because no one can profit from it. There's always an inside deal. You're just not made aware of it. So I do not support any of these efforts because I don't see them actually changing. Individual countries can do something, but India is not, the United States is not, uh, Brazil is not, and, uh, and, and China is not, and the U.S. military is not doing anything to stop polluting. Look, we didn't even go over to Iraq and clean up all of our depleted uranium from all the weapons that we use there that will stay there for over 4,000 years, causing birth defects and premature death. We didn't do any of that. We're not cleaning up Flint waters. We're not cleaning up water equally as dirty as Flint in 5,000 communities in the United States. So the next time someone starts to tell you about, oh, what we're going to do uh, in 30 years, is that mandatory, voluntary, and why aren't you starting now? So it's just a game. But one of the worst hypocrites in all of American political establishment is Barack Obama. He's not alone. Well, seasoned environmentalists were very skeptical of Obama from the very start in 2008 of his campaign, notably his coal-to-liquid technology. Remember, clean coal? Well, there is no such thing as clean coal, but say it enough, have enough public relations behind it, and one day people say, yeah, clean coal, that's what we want, clean coal. Yeah, that's like asking an impossibility through the technology but it was all in the technology which the average person doesn't understand. He advocated for this with great enthusiasm. Also, he advocated for ethanol. And what did he actually do? Barack Obama was responsible for selling off 2.2 billion tons of coal from public land. You can read the Greenpeace report on this. The sales to private interests generated 2.3 billion, but carbon dioxide damage estimated between 220 to, excuse me, 520 to 530 billion dollars, his clean power plant. So industry made off great, special interests calling themselves green made off, but the environment did not. And also, you have to understand that eradicating hazardous pollutants from power generation uh, was primarily based upon a cap-and-trade system to regulate carbon dioxide. And I'm against cap-and-trade because it's, it's a shell game. It says, you big polluting country, uh, you're going to pay for this other country that has very little pollution. And uh, it's a deal. So anybody's willing to give money if they don't have to make any changes, just like pharmaceutical companies will give billions of dollars to settle wrongful deaths and injuries. As long as they don't have to change, nobody goes to jail. So understand something. Our carbon dioxide has been increasing every single year. This year it was over 2.5%, well, the highest in the world. And China, with all of its building, is just going through the roof, and India as well. So nobody wants to slow down their economy. Nobody wants to have a national dialogue with the people living there to say, shouldn't we refocus upon not gross domestic product, which is how much we keep growing industry, building more buildings, more communities, using more fossil fuel. 
causing a greater carbon dioxide, which then causes everything else to go bad in the world. Instead, why don't we teach people that we can do better with less, have a minimalist approach instead of a maximal approach to everything. So the United States ran on a campaign that it was going to regulate carbon dioxide by 2025. 25% of uh, U.S. energy would be renewable. <laughs> that didn't happen at all. That was a complete disaster. Nobody goes back and look what you promised, all the money you gave out, and what do we have for it? It was never anywhere close to being on track for that goal. Barack Obama promoted gas hydrofracking as a move away from coal to natural gas. Did he ever go around to any of the people who are exposed to gas hydrofracking oil, excuse me, water and air? No. No, he didn't. But then again, he lives in his own rarefied kingdom. This was a this was amidst the promises to have the highest standards for fracking on federal land. No, none of those standards were maintained. Never happened. Uh, so he wanted to lower, uh, lower the natural gas export restrictions in order to sell more U.S. natural gas to foreign customers. He made efforts to weaken the rules on methane leaks from oil and gas operations, and uh, which account for about 3% of the U.S. gas emissions, also was instrumental in pushing on behalf of pipeline companies and terminals to have major coastal terminals for gas exports, most notable uh, Cove Point Terminal in Maryland that Obama touted and also uh, did nothing about the Flint water crisis. So, I mean, these are the things he did. He opened up more federal land 18% between 2009-2014 for oil and gas drilling, including off-limits regions in the mid-Atlantic coast along Alaska's Arctic coast and the Gulf of Mexico. President Obama completely failed on his uh, setting rules for, for clean disposable of coal ash byproduct. U.S. produces about 100 million tons of this terribly toxic uh, mass annually and just dumps it into holes in the ground. He also went soft on ozone pollution and smog rules. So, in fact, he even lowered Bush's uh, ozone threshold from 75 parts per billion to 70 parts per billion. But his EPA was recommending 60 parts per billion. Very insensitive to wood pellet development under the disguise of renewable. It's not renewable. It's very polluting. So just remember, the next time someone goes to these conferences and the media says, oh, you know, the people love him, you know, great speech, it's all euphemisms. It's all an illusion. There's nothing real there. Just to put a little balance into the perspective. Before we go to Steve Kirsch, who has factual information to challenge the FDA on what it's been sharing with us, the media takes as gospel, that no one looks to see, is there any motive that the FDA would have in giving us misinformation, partial truths? Steve Kirsch takes his challenge and shares the other point of view. Before we go to there, however, this coming Sunday at one o'clock, there'll be a live 
streaming Zoom meeting where I'm going to be doing a lecture on how we can deal with some of the big issues personally in our lives. What are the positive solutions to overcoming loneliness, which is endemic in our society of all age groups, by the way, depression, anxiety, uncertainty, insecurity, where a lot of people just are feel apathetic. They feel that there are too many things going wrong at the same time. There's too much stress in the world, and they're just zoning out and either taking recreational drugs or taking medications, neither of which are going to help solve anything. I'm big into the solving of the problem. So that's going to be very important. And that'll be followed by a documentary. So, And I'll be taking questions and addressing them. Go to GaryNall.com for that. Also, we've been including all of the latest articles on all the topics I discuss that I personally write. Go to GaryNall.com under articles and you can see all these. Because this, these are all footnoted with outstanding resources. So sometimes if you go to make an argument with someone and you don't have all your facts, they'll just say, well, you're, you're not a very sophisticated person and you're putting your life at risk if you do A or B. So now you'll know how to challenge these people using real scholarship. Now to a challenge to the FDA. Hi, I'm Steve Kirsch, Executive Director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. I have no conflicts of interest. Slide two. Why are kids dropping like flies right after getting vaccinated? If they didn't die from the vaccine, then what killed these kids? Next slide. How can a healthy 16-year-old boy die in the middle of a Zoom math class? He was fine 20 minutes before he died. Next slide. The doctors found nothing. What did the CDC find? Next slide. Why did this 15-year-old die in his sleep just two days after getting vaccinated? Slide number six. How did you miss all of these safety signals? Slide number seven. If the vaccines are so safe, how come Taiwan officially admits that the vaccines kill more people than the virus? Slide eight. Do you find this recent UK headline troubling? Slide nine. How are Germany and Norway both able to determine causality in sample sizes of 100 or less? but the CDC can't determine causality in over 16,000 deaths it hasn't investigated. Slide 10. How come deaths in Israel go up when vaccinations go up and go down when vaccinations go down? Slide 11. What is the VAERS underreporting factor? How can you do a risk-benefit analysis if you don't know the URF? This is extremely, extremely important. You've been assuming it's been one. It is not one. Slide 12. Using a URF of 41, which is calculated using the CC methodology, we find over 300,000 excess deaths in VAERS. If the vaccine didn't kill these kids, these people, then what did? Slide number 13. Is there any stopping addition to these experiments? How many Americans have to die before you pull the plug? How many kids have to, have to die before you yell stop? Slide 14. Why are there no autopsies for deaths after vaccination? Slide 15. Why didn't, the, why didn't the highly unusual cause of death in these kids raise any red flags in the CDC 12 to 17 safety study? They, they didn't even comment. They said, just move on, nothing to see here. Slide 16. How many months do troponin levels stay elevated after vaccination? Slide 17. Of the over nearly 140,000 comments have been posted against, vac uh, against the vaccines in kids, I found only one comment uh, in favor. How many did you find? Slide 18, 
Did you ever read the Kostok paper? It says that five times uh, as likely to die from the vaccine as from COVID. And it's even worse if you're younger. Slide 19. Why was this paper removed over the objections of the editors? Slide 19. They found 19, or slide 20. They put 19 times the expected number of, of uh, myocarditis cases and a five-fold increase on dose two. Slide 22. Is this what you mean by slightly elevated risk? Um, and let's uh, skip uh, to slide 26. Uh, how can a kid who was in the Pfizer 15, 12 to 15 year old trial be paralyzed and not um, have that reported to the FDA? How can you approve a vaccine for under 12 when you haven't investigated this study? Let's skip to the uh, end here, slide number 30, which is the complete list of my questions are posted on trial site news today. Just search for Verbeck. There are too many unanswered questions for you to approve the vaccine for five to 11 year olds. Thank you. All of the videos that you're watching now and all the articles associated with them are posted on PRN.FM under my notes. This way you can have the actual documentation. One of the biggest debates right now is, are there any justifications for vaccinating children, infants, toddlers with the COVID vaccine? The science says no. Clinical experience says no. But Anthony Fauci and the USDA and FDA, excuse me, the um, Center for Disease Control and the FDA say, yes, of course you should vaccinate. The New York Times, all are pro-vaccine, but more importantly, they're attacking anyone who challenges it. So let's just say that you've been sick. You had the COVID virus. You're immune now. In fact, the studies show that you could have anywhere from a 1,400% greater immune response to up to 2,200%. And good quality studies have shown this. So natural immunity is what we actually should have. Children have it because they're exposed. It's just that they're so healthy, very few ever have any uh, symptoms. And even those symptoms are easy to deal with if you follow proper protocols. In any case... Now there are over 91 studies, 91, showing natural immunity is much better than the immunity that wanes very quickly from the, uh, from the spike protein in the vaccines. Plus all the other side effects that you would get from the vaccine, you're not getting those from the natural immunity. And one study has now shown that you might have lifetime immunity from the, uh, from the natural the natural virus infecting you. However, this is going to take it to a new level because now they're trying to make it look like you must get vaccinated even if you've had natural immunity because you're going to spread it to other people and you yourself could get sick again. Really? Show me your proof. Show me your documentation. Here's ours. Then you compare what the New York Times and the dancing clowns in the mainstream media want you to believe, and the Anthony Fauci, the pathological liars at, in Washington, they'll tell you anything, and they have, contradicting themselves daily. We're not. Every single thing we've shared with you during this entire pandemic has been shown to be accurate. We don't deal in supposition, or we don't politicize or weaponize any of this. There's no ideology here. It's just real, honest science. 
This you haven't uh, seen before. Under the Freedom of Information Act, FOI, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, admitted it does not have any documented cases of unvaccinated people being reinfected or transmitting COVID to another person after acquiring natural immunity. In September a New York attorney, Elizabeth Brem, had requested documents reflecting any documented case of an individual who 1. Never received a COVID-19 vaccine. 2. Was infected with COVID-19 once, recovered, and then later became infected again. And 3. Transmitted SARS-CoV-2 to another person when reinfected. The CDC responded in a letter dated 5 November. A search of our records failed to reveal any documents pertaining to your request, a spokesperson for the CDC replied. The CDC Emergency Operations Center, EOC, conveyed that this information is not collected. While the answer on its own does not establish that no such cases exist, it could be taken as an indicator of health authorities' disinterest in information that could undermine their chosen policies. Studies have found that vaccine-induced COVID protection wanes around six months, or potentially sooner. LifeSite News reported, by contrast, a recent Yale study projected that natural immunity lasts three times longer. Dr. Sebastian Rushworth, a physician in Stockholm, discussed in an article a recent Swedish study to determine how effective the COVID injections are at protecting against COVID after more than a few months. In total, 1,684,958 individuals were included in the study. The authors of the study identified who was vaccinated in late May 2021. The vaccinated people were then matched individually against people of the same age and gender, and living in the same municipality, who hadn't been vaccinated. They followed them until October to see if they developed COVID-19. After the first two months from vaccination, there was a rapid decline in efficacy. At four to six months, the injections, over all types, were only reducing the relative risk of infection by 48%. Governments had initially set the bar for approving the vaccines at a 50% relative risk reduction. So, if the trials had been required to run for six months before presenting results instead of only running for two months, then the vaccines would have been considered too ineffective to be worth bothering with and would never have been approved, Dr. Rushworth wrote, four to six months after the injection, AstraZeneca was at that point not doing anything whatsoever to lower risk, and, by the nine-month mark, the Pfizer vaccine is no longer offering any protection. Dr. Robert Malone posted on Telegram, natural immunity is broad, protective, and durable. Unlike vaccine-induced immunity, I am so tired of USG lies. Dr. Malone should know, he is the inventor of mRNA vaccines and RNA as a drug. Further resources. Freedom of Information Request CDC Atlanta. As I promised at the beginning of the program, we're going to be allowing a forum for those mainstream pro-vaccine orthodox physicians and scientists who have been denigrated, attacked, to have their say. Here is Dr. Harvey Rice. Uh, one of the most respected epidemiologists and oncologists in the world. Uh, he's published hundreds of papers. He's been a tenured professor. He's never had a controversy his entire life. And yet when he started talking about hydroxychloroquine working, they just attacked him and they have not apologized. So now he's fighting back. And behind him are all the actual studies.
So you're not hearing his opinion. You're looking at the actual studies. And he's citing their studies and showing where they've been wrong. So let's go to this, the full interview, which is a half hour. You can watch, download on PRN.FM. But this is enough to let you know he has the truth on his side. They don't. Good morning, everyone. I'm Harvey Risch. Uh, and you just heard the title, so I can skip this slide and go to the next one. Let me just start with uh, my conflicts of interest. I have a small amount of legal consulting with some attorneys with products that are not related to COVID-19. Uh, I've done a few pro bono cases, um, no payments for anything related to COVID, no product, no future payments, no testimonials, nothing. Okay, why am I talking about hydroxychloroquine? This topic first caught my eye in March, 2020 when the Marseille group published a paper. And given that I'm kind of a quant, uh, I like playing with data and they put all their data into an appendix, which I, you can see in the bottom of this slide. And I thought, oh, well, I could analyze that by Cox regression survival time analysis. And I did that. And from that analysis, it was obvious that hydroxychloroquine and especially with azithromycin added to it. So that's HCQ and, and azithromycin were associated with shorter time to the first negative PCR test adjusted for initial clinical status, age and sex. So this Marseille paper with 42 patients was hardly definitive, but it was a signal, it was provocative. I then discovered that Chinese investigators had been studying chloroquine for some time and had shown evidence for effectiveness in reducing replication of SARS-CoV-2, at least in lab studies. That's what they showed here. Over the next five to six weeks, I reviewed everything that I could find about the efficacy and safety of hydroxychloroquine in COVID. But one thing began to seem very strange to me. Studies were being published about hydroxychloroquine use in hospital inpatients, but their conclusions in the media reports were all about making statements about all of COVID, in, meaning both ambulatory outpatients and hospital inpatients. And even though at that time, we already knew that outpatient disease, which is a flu-like Ill illness with headache, cough, sneezing, runny nose, uh, muscle aches, and, and a few other things, was totally different than the hospital disease, which is a florid pneumonia with immune system crud filling up the lungs. And these two diseases needed totally different treatments. Also, somewhere about then, Dr. Zevzelenko had started publicizing his very effective experience in treating patients in upstate New York with hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin plus zinc. But then new media messages started popping up saying that this combination didn't work based on results that only examine hydroxychloroquine by itself. So at the time, I naively thought that this was just sloppy science and sloppy reporting. And I set out to formalize a review by being detailed about outpatients, about early use, high-risk people, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, not hydroxychloroquine alone, and so on. And that's what I published that came out on May 27th of last year. And you can see from the title here, the exact specification of who to be treated and when. So this is early treatment, outpatient treatment of high-risk patients. Now, to be completely transparent, the journal, the paper was not sent out by the journal for external peer review, but was blindly reviewed by the editors of the journal, and they identified various issues with the paper. It was revised, resubmitted, and then it was accepted. In that AJE paper, I had available both that first Marseille study that I showed you, a second Marseille study with larger numbers of subjects, the initial sample of Dr. Zelenko's 1,450 patients. 
of whom 400 or so were classified as high risk, a study of 636 high-risk outpatients in Brazil, and a small study of 54 Long Island nursing home patients that were treated with hydroxychloroquine and doxycycline. And in, my in that paper, I asserted that these results were definitive for a benefit of early treatment. And this was obvious because the ho hospitalization and especially mortality risks of COVID-19 at that time were hugely greater than what these show studies showed with early treatment. Well, by saying this, I lost some friends, so to speak, for hydroxychloroquine and in part, some colleagues said that they didn't think that I had enough data to make the case that I claimed. As it turns out, I did, and you'll see why. In any event, this paper in the American Journal of Epidemiology very quickly became the highest ever altmetric score paper of the journal. Now has been downloaded more than 90,000 times and viewed by more than 150,000 times the most of any paper in that journal ever. And then strange things began to happen. I started getting lots of emails from doctors saying that they agreed with me or that they had been using hydroxychloroquine for the outpatient, their outpatients and it was working. And at the same time, I started getting public criticism by talking head doctors in the mainstream US media, including Dr. Fauci, who had been saying that any study that's not a randomized trial, not an RCT, was anecdotal, that's his term, which is his code word for junk science, and which any competent medical science, scientist knows is complete nonsense. And anecdotal means individual case reports, nothing else. In particular, CNN asked me for a TV interview, which they knew they would try to manipulate to make me look bad, to discredit me exactly the same way they tried to do to Peter Navarro, who had been trying to get the US stockpile of HCQ open for general use. However, I don't intimidate easily. And I argued back strongly enough that the people who watched this uh, interview told me that it looked more like I was being bullied than interviewed. And then the hydroxychloroquine science war started. More studies started coming out. Well, normally I'd say published, but in the climate of corrupt medical peer review today, that what's published and, and what goes to preprint servers are, depends on what the message of the paper is, not on the quality of the science. Uh, in any event, that these papers were claiming that uh, hydroxychloroquine showed no benefit or was actually harmful. This, for example, the fake Surgisphere papers that were retracted. And these paper, negative papers were quickly reviewed and pushed out in Lancet, New England Journal, JAMA, and other top journals, which at the same time were refusing to publish the positive hydroxychloroquine papers. Also, at the same time, the hydroxychloroquine political and policy war been going on was continuing. In March of 2020, President Trump ordered BARDA, which is one of the US agencies, to release the US national strategic stockpile of 60 million hydroxychloroquine doses. This order was conveyed by Secretary of Health Alex, Alex Azar to the director of BARDA, Rick Bright. However, Bright secretly conferred with Dr. Janet Woodcock, who was then head of drugs and therapeutics of FDA, who told him not to request the FDA approval for the use of hydroxychloroquine, but instead to file an, early, an emergency use authorization in EUA for hospital use only, knowing that the drug worked less well that way and blocking out hydroxychloroquine outpatient use. This FDA EUA was secretly submitted at midnight to Woodcock and approved 30 minutes later with no agency discussion. And this action by these two conspirators essentially blocked the use of hydroxychloroquine for outpatients. But then the FDA put up a fraudulent website and I'm showing the website here. The red boxes are things that I'm highlighting in the website. This was put up on July 1st of last year. It's still there today. And you can see what this website says is FDA cautions against usage of hydroxychloroquine 
outside the hospital setting, meaning for outpatients. And then when they tell you down here in the blue box where they get data for this, it says to treat hospitalized patients and not outpatients. And you can understand that if the FDA had data, systematic data on adverse events in outpatients, it would have said that's the reason. So the answer is they don't have data and they didn't have data for hydroxychloroquine use in outpatients. And they put up this fraud saying that hospitalized patients, which is a completely different disease, a completely different treatment regimen, bears on outpatient hydroxychloroquine usage. This fraud led medical and pharmacy regulators across the states to ban hydroxychloroquine use. And many countries that look to the US also use this fraudulent website to justify banning hydroxychloroquine. Now, those of us new to the science of COVID treatment didn't really understand because this had been brewing since the fall of 2019. In October of 2019, the French Minister of Health, Agnès Buzyn, reclassified hydroxychloroquine from over-the-counter to prescription only. And she had no evidence to do it. She based it on a claim about chloroquine that was supposedly genotoxic. Since hydroxychloroquine is similar in structure, it should be limited. And this was in spite of the fact that hydroxychloroquine has been used for more than 65 years in hundreds of millions of patients in tens of billions of doses in complete safety. It's used and recommended for use in children, in pregnant women, in infants, in frail elderly. It's universal. It is one of the safest medications available, safer than aspirin, Tylenol, and everything else that everybody considers safe. And this was done, this reclassification was done in, in October, uh, publicly announced in January of 2020, before the public knew that this pandemic was coming. And this was, this was done because of reasoning that, was, that they had, that the minister, French Minister of Health had for reasons well before the public knew an epidemic was coming. Now, as the spreading of the epidemic was occurring, this very strange paper was published in February of 2020. You can see the title is The Magic of Randomization Versus the Myth of Real World Evidence. It must have been written in January of 2020, again, before people knew that the pandemic was coming. This paper makes the outrageous claim that randomization always create perfect studies and that all non-randomized studies are evidentiary rubbish. It's a lying screed against my entire discipline of epidemiology. And I was frankly offended by it when I first saw it. But later I looked up the conflicts of interest of the authors to find that all of them are mainly funded by pharma companies and in particular Martin Landre, who was the principal investigator of the fraudulent recovery trial. What I did not realize at the time was this paper was set up to block all non-randomized evidence, trial evidence that the pharma vaccine companies knew would be coming because valid randomized trials that they were doing would take time to carry out and they had to block everything else that could compete. You can guess that the magic paper does not discuss the fact that for randomization to work, it requires hundreds of outcomes in each arm of the trial. Otherwise, the randomized trial is no better than a non-randomized trial because it doesn't matter what the p-value is for the distribution of covariates in an RCT. It matters what the distribution is. And unless you have hundreds of outcomes, that distribution can be skewed by chance. And, and the skew is what matters, not the p-value. It also doesn't talk about the fact that randomized trials are very easy to subvert in full public view. You can design them for unrealistic magnitudes of benefit, then when those benefits aren't met at interim analyses, stop, stop the trials early, use subjective outcomes or change the outcomes midway, don't validate the participants, don't validate the outcomes, 
Enroll people at low risk of the important outcomes, ignore medication shipping delays, uh, use easily recognizable placebos, give inadequate doses, give toxic doses, draw conclusions from part of the results and ignore the inconvenient results, or draw the conclusions from p-values, not from the magnitude of benefit, generalize the conclusions as applying more than to the specific types of subjects that were in the study, et cetera. All of these fraudulent techniques have been used in studies over the last year and a half. They also, the magic paper, didn't recognize that the ex-CDC director, Tom Frieden, had written extensively in the same New England Journal three years earlier that non-randomized trials convey equally, if not sometimes, better evidence than randomized trials. And one of the things that underlined Frieden's statement was the extraordinary paper that came out in 2014 that was motivated by the Cochrane Consortium looking at comparing randomized trials to their non-randomized corresponding trials. And this study was a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. All of these are meta-analyses that encompass more than 10,000 studies in total looking at randomized trials and the same study of the same outcome, the same exposure, same drug or, or procedure and so on, but in a non-randomized but controlled trial. And what they found is the difference between randomized and non-randomized trials was 8% difference, not statistically significant. In 10,000 you know, comparisons, you'd expect the most minute result to be statistically significant. And in fact, here we have a minute result that's not even statistically significant. Given that these were the, the non-randomized trials that were modern randomized trials and controlled for known confounders, but this demonstrates that non-randomized but controlled trials are just as good on average than randomized trials. And this evidence, this empirical evidence of these 10,000 plus studies is the empirical reason why claims that randomized trials only are valid is a shibboleth, a falsehood. It is also evidence why Fauci's statements that non-randomized studies are anecdotal, those are lies. It is evidence why the FDA saying that it requires evidence only from randomized trials before it can approve medications is a fraud. It essentially limits drug approvals to large companies that it can afford the $50 million price tag or greater cost to do randomized trials. And in fact, it is why the US Congress in 2016 passed the, the 21st Century Cures Act, that's this here, which in, in section 3022 requires federal agencies to use all relevant forms of evidence, including non-randomized evidence as part of the evidence for making regulatory decisions. Now, what I do in science for my career as an epidemiologist is to use whole bodies of knowledge that lets us as scientists review all scientific evidence to draw conclusions. And this was laid out in the seminal paper by Austin Bradford Hill in 1965. This is what scientists around the world use for making inference from associational studies about causation. It's Hill's classic rubric of aspects of causal reasoning. It's withstood the test of time used in tens or hundreds of thousands of studies to draw these conclusions. It is not randomized controlled trial fetishism. Now, before I understand, I, uh, I, I discuss what I understand to be the evidence about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, I wanna mention the junk studies that were contrived to fail. There are five main contrived to fail hydroxychloroquine outpatient studies. The first four published in 220. Two of these were done at the University of Minnesota, two in Catalonia, one in Canada. These studies are grossly afflicted with the subversion methods that I mentioned before. And, and you can go to the earlycovidcare.org website 
to see uh, how I take them apart and illustrate all of the malfeasance that each of these studies included. I would point out just now that both Boulware, his two studies and the Mijah studies had active pharma conflicts of interest of those authors that they did not disclose when they published their papers. The, pharm the conflicts of interest were found by searching the internet at the time to find that they had pharma conflicts of interest that they did not disclose. So the actual evidence, I'll race through this. You can look at, at this in, uh, in your leisure if you like to see more of the details. There's now 10 studies. The first study was done in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was consecutive outpatients who had flu-like sy symptoms suspected to be COVID at a time when COVID was raging. Uh, they were evaluated by telemedicine. The subjects who treated uh, agreed to take hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, the ones who declined because in general, they were less sick, the, the, the treated subjects were worse off, which puts them at disadvantage for doing well. In spite of that, the patients started treatment before day seven, had a hospitalization risk of 1.2%. The ones who didn't take the hydroxychloroquine treatment, 5.4% for a relative risk of 0.2. A study in Brasilia, outpatient recruited through medical clinics and so on. No hospitalizations or deaths seen in hydroxychloroquine patients, 27 in the control patients and two died. Relative risk, perhaps a hospitalization of 0.01, mortality risk of 0.7. And this was um, corrected because of the zeros, continuity corrected. So that's where this study falls in. The Marseille screening and study, this is the second Marseille study. Okay, this was among patients age 60 or older, 1,500 patients treated with hydroxychloroquine for three days or more, plus azithromycin in three days compared to 520 patients less than three days or not. Again, age, sex, time period, adjusted regression, odds ratio of 0.17. Marseille nursing home study, 226 residents of 23 nursing homes. Again, adjusted for everything, odds ratio of 0.37 for hydroxychloroquine use. A nursing home study in Andorra, which is between Spain and, and, um, and uh, France and, and Spain. Um, Again, 100 PCR converted COVID-19 patients, elderly patients aged 85 years on average, multivariate adjustment for everything. I hope you found today's program enlightening. Remember, those people, whether they're pundits at Pacifica or special interest groups uh, in the media or controlling different aspects of the media, when they want you censored, when they want you taken off the air, but they won't debate you, what does that tell you? That's fascism. That's totalitarianism. We're here to provide a voice for the people out there who are making a difference and telling the truth. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.